Hey, this is Caleb Clay, Associate Pastor of Anchor Faith Church here in Valdosta, Georgia. We want to thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We believe that it will minister to you and be a blessing to your life. Now get ready to receive a word from God. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're starting in verse 4. I'm reading out of the New American Standard, and let's see where the Spirit takes us. Now, Solomon is writing this book. A little, little background on Solomon is he's the third king of Israel, the son of David, the, the very famous king of Israel. Solomon is the wisest man to have ever lived. When he was a young man, God came to him and said, ask me whatever you want. And Solomon said, I want wisdom. And God granted him that type of supernatural wisdom, and he gave him all the stuff he didn't ask for, wealth, honor, fame. So Solomon is a wise man, and we see Ecclesiastes is near the end of his life, and it's kind of an experiment. And Solomon has had time to look at the world around him. I mean, we're, we're talking about the wisest man who's ever lived, who's living in a peaceful time period. So he's got a lot of time on his hands. So Solomon actually goes around, and he views things, and he views people, and here's what he comes up with. Ecclesiastes 1.4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. I'm going to pause there for a second. We've got Solomon, wisest man ever. And again, this is an experiment, and he has a hypothesis. His hypothesis is that the things in nature work on a repeating basis. He mentions rivers. He mentions the wind. He mentions the sun. These are all natural occurrences. So his hypothesis is that nature works in a cycle. And cycle is going to be a key word for us tonight. Nature works in a cycle. That it goes one way and it eventually comes back to that beginning. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, next day it happens again. He continues on, and he even takes it beyond nature in verse 8. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye, he's moving beyond nature, and he's moving to the human realm now. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. So Solomon takes his hypothesis concerning nature. The sun rises, the sun sets, and repeat. The wind blows and the wind stops and then repeat. And he applies it to man. And he says that man also works on a cyclical nature, that we see things and we're never satisfied. We hear things and we're never, never satisfied. So his hypothesis is that man also works in a cycle. 
And that's where we're going to go tonight is the danger of cycles and the blessing of seasons. If I had a title for this, I don't really like titles for messages, but if I did have to title it for for note takers, it would be Here We Go Again. Here we go again, January 2nd, New Year. And if you are taking notes, I'm going to give you a heads up. You need to kind of divide your notes into two sides because we're going to compare and contrast cycles versus seasons. There's a big difference. There's a big difference between cycles and seasons. So let me throw some definitions at you. Let's move over to a cycle. Let me define it before I keep using the word. A cycle is a repeated behavior that prevents progress. I'll say that again. A cycle is a repeated behavior that prevents progress. So if we take Solomon's hypothesis, what he's saying is that nature acts as a repeated behavior, sun setting, wind blowing, and that actually prevents progress. And he says that man acts the same way, that we repeat our behaviors, and that prevents progress. That's a cycle. Now, if you move over, if you did divide it, let me define a season for you. A season is a familiar experience that allows advancement. A season is a familiar experience that allows advancement. I'm going to show you some examples throughout the Bible of people that operated in cycles and people that operated in seasons. Season being that familiar experience that allows advancement. But before we look at the differences, it is important to look at some of the similarities, because I'm not here to say that cycles and seasons are complete opposites. It's not fire and water. It's not hot and cold. It's not dark and light. They actually have some common ground, some similarities between cycles and seasons is that they both involve repetition. Both of them are repeated. It's pretty clear with Solomon's hypothesis that cycles are repeated, but let me say that seasons are repeated as well. Repetition is not dangerous if it's used in the right way. Habits can be bad or good. The opposite of addiction is discipline. So, repetition is a factor in both cycles and seasons. They both involve repetition. They both contain mountains and valleys. So I'm I'm also not here to tell you that a season means that it's all going to be rainbows and sunshine, that it's all going to be easy. But no, seasons also have challenges. Seasons also have low points, hard times, hardships to press through. And cycles definitely have that. So cycles and seasons share repetition. They share, excuse me, mountains and valleys. One more similarity is that both cycles and seasons, excuse me, (laughs) Chick-fil-A, have, they, they are uniquely personal. What I mean by that, and we'll flesh this out in, in, the, in the Word, is that a season is very personal, meaning that you 
your season is not going to look identical to someone else's season. The same is also true for a cycle. You have an individual unique cycle if you're in that realm that may or may not apply to somebody else. They are personal. So before we move forward, three things that cycles and seasons have in common. Forgive me if I repeat myself a lot. I teach ninth graders for a living, so (laughs) I'm used to it. A cycle is a repeated behavior that prevents progress. A season is a familiar experience that allows advancement. And they share three things. They both have repetition. They both have mountains and valleys. And what is my third one? (laughs) They're personal, exactly. They're personal, personal. So let's look at the differences. And let me say something about that we have to know the difference. This is the the crux of of the message, is telling the difference, difference between a cycle and a season. Because they look alike, but they are very different. And because they look alike, they're very dangerous. You know, Jesus warned of sheeps or wolves in sheep clothing, right? And I kind of relate that to a cycle versus a season. A cycle can look like a season, and it's no more than a wolf in sheep's clothing. We have to recognize and identify the difference, or we're in very dangerous ground. Okay? So go with me to 1 Samuel. Let me show you the first way that cycles and seasons differ. And I'm going to use two men to show you. 1 Samuel chapter 24 is where we're going. And we're going to look at good old Saul and David. It will be pretty, pretty clear that I think which one operates in a cycle and which one operates in a season. But let's start with 1 Samuel 24. I could start with 1 Samuel 18, because 1 Samuel 18 shows how right after David kills Goliath, the boy topples the giant, he becomes Saul's musician. And Saul has an evil spirit that invades him often. And David plays the harp to soothe him. And then the Bible records in 1 Samuel 18 that two or three times Saul is, is, he's distressed by this spirit and he ends up throwing a spear at David because he's jealous of David. And that happens about two or three times. So we can already see from that that Saul operates in cycles. And he, he has the same experiences and he gives the same reaction. But what I want to flesh out is 1 Samuel 24. This is after David has fled for his life, that Saul's compulsion, Saul's insecurity has heightened to the fact that David has had to run for his life. And now we come across 1 Samuel 24 and verse 1, that Saul hears where David is. Now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of the Engedi. Keep that in mind. Verse 1, Saul receives a report. Hey, we know where David is. He's over there. Here's Saul's reaction. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. 
he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. <laughs> it's funny. When, when you're operating in a, in a cycle, it's going to put you in positions you don't want to be in. You're going to be put in caves with the people you don't want to be put in caves with. So Saul goes, and he thinks he's coming after David, but he's put in a cave where David's in the back. Verse 4, the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. What I want to point out here, Saul received a report. David's over there, and Saul reacts to that report goes to the cave, and he's at David's mercy. David also receives a report in verse 4. His men tell him, there's Saul. God has told you that your enemy will be delivered into your hand. There he is getting. The difference is that Saul is in a cycle of insecurity. His insecurity, is, is, his insecurity got him in the mess to begin with. David was not a threat to Saul. David was not vying for Saul's jobs. David was waiting on the Lord. But because of insecurity, Saul sought to go after David. And David gets the report, and he doesn't act on it. And what's funny about this is that David was tempted to do the same thing that Saul was doing. Saul's cycle stemmed from his insecurity, and it was a cycle of aggression. Let's go kill David. David had the temptation here for aggression, that he could have killed the king. But he would have began his reign with that same aggression. He would have started his very own cycle. He would have been no different than Saul. Insecurity would have sent David into a cycle that would have affected his entire reign. So David does not kill Saul, but he actually cuts off a piece of his robe. And then when Saul goes out of the cave, David goes to another spot and he yells out, Hey, I've got your robe. I could have killed you. And look at Saul's words in verse 16. We're going to skip down the same chapter to verse 16. I love this. Huh? <laughs> when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, the words of, hey, Saul, I'm over here. I got your robe. Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Take note of what he says. Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted his, up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. And what happens next is that 
They go their separate ways. David stays in the wilderness. Saul goes back to his kingdom. Okay? But we're going to see the cycle and season played out a couple of pages later. 1 Samuel 26. It's a couple of flips in my Bible. 1 Samuel 26, verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? That's a repeat of chapter 24. It's another report. Hey, David's over there. We see that Saul's in a cycle in verse 2. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Same reaction, same report, same reaction from Saul. Okay? Let's keep on reading. Saul camped in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. At this point, David's probably not surprised. He knows that Saul is a cyclical human being, and he doesn't change. He doesn't grow. Remember what a cycle is. It's a repeated behavior that prevents progress. Saul does not change. He's caught in a cycle. Verse 5, David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. Very similar situation. David comes upon Saul sleeping, but this time he's not in a cave. Saul's gotten even more paranoid. He's got people around him. He's got a spear beside his head, but he's sleeping. And David and his, his bud Abishai come along, and there's the king, there's the prize, same situation, same thing. And look, it takes it a step further. Verse 8 is another report. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. I will not strike him the second time. Saul received the same report as before and reacted the same way. David gets the same report as before. But David's not in a cycle. What is a season? A season is a familiar experience that allows advancement. David does not act the same way that he did before. The act of removing, cutting off Saul's robe, he did not kill Saul before. But that was still an act of aggression. And the Bible tells us that David's conscience actually hurt him because he cut off the, the robe of the king. Look at what David does. He's in a season. He's going to advance. He's going to do something different. Verse 9. 
But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. David's response is different. And if you want further proof about Saul's response being the same, look down at verse 17. Then this is, David goes a little ways further, and he calls out to Saul again, saying, hey, I could have killed you. I've got your spear. I've got your jug of water. Look at Saul's words. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? Word for word, same words as chapter 24. Saul is in a cycle. He's going to do the same thing. But David is in a season, and he understands seasons. Now, without getting too crazy, I want to... I want to flesh out a little bit to what that spear and that jug of water actually mean. Remember, Saul's cycle stemmed from aggression. It came from insecurity, and it was pushed, for, pushed forth aggression. David had the, the choice to act aggressively. And cutting off the hem of the robe was a semi-aggressive act. But when he takes the spear, David removes aggression. That spear is a symbol for violence, for bloodshed, for conflict. And David says, "Uh uh-uh, that's mine. You don't need it. And the jug of water, don't even get me started on the jug of water. Water has so many symbols. And I'm here to say that the jug of water is the life of the kingdom that is now rightfully David's. Doesn't belong to Saul. And David takes it and cares for it because he is the rightful king. So, a major takeaway from this, going back to cycles and seasons and a a difference. Cycles appear the same because they are the same. Saul never acts any differently than he ever did before. His situation is the same. His reaction is the same. Cycles appear the same because they are the same. Seasons appear the same, but require new levels of faith and ability. That looked like the exact same situation to David, but it required a new level of faith and even more ability than he had before. He understood seasons, and he acted accordingly. Okay? So, Let's move on past Saul and David. Saul and David show us that cycles and seasons operate on an individual level. But if you turn with me to Numbers chapter 13, I want to show you an example of cycles and seasons operating at a collective level. Because, yes, we have cycles and seasons in our individuals, in our individual bodies, in our individual lives, but they also operate collectively in groups at work. In church bodies. They operate collectively. So Numbers 13, 
We're going to start in verse 1. And we're pretty familiar with this situation. This is the children of Israel being led by Moses. They have come out of Egypt. They have come out of slavery. They have made it across the, the sea, the Red Sea. They have made it through some hardships and trials. They have their law, their Ten Commandments. Excuse me. And now they are on the edge of the promised land. Everything that they've been wanting, everything that they've been hoping for is right in front of them. Numbers 13, verse 1. Then the Lord, keep in mind, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is God saying, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. This is something I missed in the past. The spies were God's will. It wasn't them being sneaky. It wasn't them secretly going into the land to see if they could make it. The spies were from God. He told them to go in. He told them to spy it out. So this is not Israel collectively acting disobediently. They're doing what God says. Flip over with me to verse 25. Verse 25 is when we get the report. Think about Saul and David. They both received reports. Now we get a report, a report two kinds. We get a report from spies, and we get a report from soldiers. Let's look at what the spies say. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit." Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. That, nevertheless, that's a, that's a dangerous word. That's a turning. That's, that's a turn transition. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. They, they go into detail. This guy's living there and this guy's living there and this guy's living there. And it's not pretty. Verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. There's a soldier's report but the spies quieted him down. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size." There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. The spies' report stems from a cycle. 
Caleb and Joshua's report stems from a season. Let me just look at some of the words that they said. The spies said, quoting, We saw the descendants of Anak there. To flesh that out a little bit, they're referring to Genesis 6. Genesis 6 talks about giants that came upon the earth um, because they, they married into a, a, a wrong bloodline and strong giants came. So this tells us that the people are living in the past. They're living back Genesis 6 times, and they're saying, the sons of Anak is there. That's, that's, that's bad news. So already their cycle's coming out because they're connected to the past. And then they say, we are like grasshoppers in our own sight. Now, this is something that Pastor Marcus fleshed out before. But this is how they view themselves. They don't say that, oh, they, they looked at us like we were grasshoppers. We see later on in Joshua that the people were shaking in their boots about Israel. The people were terrified. The people that were living in the promised land were terrified of the people of Israel. But it's how they view themselves. You're living in a cycle if you view yourself with inferiority. They view themselves like grasshoppers. The other report saw the brink of a brand new season. Caleb uses words like, by all means. That means he's putting everything on the line. We're going to go in because God told us to go in, and we're going to get it no matter what. By all means. That's a season mentality. That's not a cycle. That is breaking into something new. By all means. He says, we will surely overcome. He does not deny the existence of the sons of Anak or the giants or the people. It's not a denial, but it's a disregard because he knows that God is with them. He trusts in God's word to go into the, the land of milk and honey. Now, this, is a, this is a side note. This is a side tangent. So if you're taking notes, you can like draw a little bubble or something somewhere. This is free. I've always struggled with the milk and honey reference because in my mind, maybe I'm just childish, I have, I have trouble viewing a land that's like, there's a milk river and there's a honey river, okay? I always struggled with that until God showed me something the other day of what they actually mean. When Joshua and Caleb go in there and they say it's a, man, a land flowing with milk and honey, what they actually mean is that it's a land that has cows and bees, okay? So you got cows and you got bees. What they're saying is that land can be a land of milk and honey. It's going to take a little work. And, that, and that, that echoes God's whole mentality of seeing things not as they are, but as they can be. So a land of milk and honey is actually a land of cows and bees. We've got to think about where, what are our cows and what are our bees and what work do we need to do. That's free, okay? That's a that's, that's side note. Um, going back to cycles and seasons, the spies' report is what they followed, we know, and they ended up being caught in a cycle of 40 years where they're wandering in the wilderness. God has, the only thing that can, the only thing that can get those children of Israel out of the cycle is death because they were trapped in it. And God had to wait until they died off to change, change the, the nation's mentality. But here's, here's the major takeaways from the spies and the soldiers. Cycles seem to have no escape. And that makes perfect sense if we think about the word cycle. It is connected 
etymologically to the word circle, and a circle has no ending. It has no escape. So a cycle has no escape. Cycles offer the same solutions. When you're in a cycle, you say things like, we are slaves. That's the reason why they couldn't get past the sons of Anak and into the promised land, because they had a cyclical slave mentality. I am a slave. I have no business in the promised land. That was their mentality. That was their cycle. Joshua and Caleb shows us that seasons, so cycles seem to have no escape, seasons seem to have no boundaries. A season seems to have no boundaries. And also we can derive meaning from the word season. So the word cycle comes from circle. The word season is actually a Latin word. We get it in English from uh, the Latin word that means to seed. It's a farming term. It means you put seed in the ground. Now, we know that seed, seed um, language is all throughout the Bible. God loves seeds because he doesn't see a seed. He sees a tree. He sees fruit. He sees life. So a season doesn't have boundaries. A season sees seeds. One more place I want to take us in showing the difference between cycles and seasons. And we're going to go back to where we started, Ecclesiastes. Solomon is going to show us one more difference. We're in chapter 11. I really do love the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I think it's full of hard-to-swallow stuff, because <laughs> here at the beginning, Solomon is very demure. He's very depressing. He's talking about everything is vanity. Everything is a cycle. And remember his hypothesis. Remember where we started, that nature operates in cycles, and therefore man must operate in cycles. And then he goes through chapters 2 through 10 are the, the culmination of his experiment, he goes to marketplaces, he goes to churches, he walks the streets, and he talks about what he sees. Chapter 11 is his conclusion, and he changes his hypothesis. Chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven, or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a, trees fall, a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you know, do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. I want to break this down a little bit. Back in verse 1, he says, cast your bread upon many waters. What he means right there 
is take risks. If you got your bread, don't hold it in. Cast it out. Cast it out on the waters. Take risks. Basically, in New Testament language, he's saying live by faith and not by sight. Take chances. Cycles may be tough, but they are also safe. That's a big difference between cycles and seasons. Solomon tells us to cast that bread out. It's the safe thing is to keep it in. The safe thing is to hold it. And, and there's actually some, some science behind this. I've been reading It's a really neat book. It's called Love is a Choice. It's written by, by three doctors. Um, three, two of them are psychiatrists. One of them is a psychologist. And, and it talks about addictions. It talks about codependency and, and, and how to break free. And I want to pull a little bit from when they do talk about cycles. They talk about cycles a lot, but one phrase just really jumped out at me. And, and it backs up this. They say that cycles of activity and repetition fascinate us because they govern so much of our everyday lives. They appeal to our sense of order. And two, there is a certain comfort and cyclical recurrence. Whether something is pleasant or painful, at least you know it's coming. Cycles are safe. And that's why, back, going back to Caleb and Joshua, the soldiers' report, when Caleb says, by all means, we'll take the promised land, that's an unsafe statement. That's him being seasonal-minded and not cyclically-minded. Verse 2, Solomon says, divide your portion. What he's, what he's getting at here is our lives are multifaceted. Meaning that I don't, want to, I don't want us to think that I am fully in a season or I am fully in a cycle. Our portions are divided, actually. You might be in a healthy cycle at work or a healthy season at work and an awful cycle in your marriage. So we need to keep in mind that it's not one or all, but it's multifaceted. Our portions are divided. We need to have healthy seasons in our job, in our marriage, with our kids here at church. We need to view our lives as multifaceted. And then later on when he says, where the tree falls. Excuse me. That's verse 3. Wherever the tree falls, there it lies. Basically what this means is that things happen, but God's in control. That's a mentality difference between a cycle and a season. Trees fall, things happen, but God is in control. So a major takeaway from Solomon, I'm wrapping up. Cycles focus on today in light of yesterday. A cycle is repeated because it's chained to the past. Saul and the spies couldn't escape the past. Saul was so consumed with his insecurity of the past that he had to get after David. The spies were so consumed by their slave mentality that they couldn't break out. Cycles focus on today in light of yesterday. People that are in cycles say things like, I've been here before. I've seen that before. I've heard that before. 
but a person in a season. Seasons focus on today in light of tomorrow. Cycles focus on today in light of yesterday. Seasons focus on today in light of tomorrow. David knew that he should not harm Saul because he was focused on running the kingdom tomorrow. Joshua and Caleb knew that taking the promised land would be hard, but it would be worth it. They focused on tomorrow. So what you might say in a season is I'm planting planting for a harvest. Not I've been here before, but I'm planting for a harvest. What I want to end with, and let me ask the worship team to come up and just sing very briefly the chorus of that song again. What I'm getting at is... Church, we're coming out of a season of stretching. I love, how, I, I love how we end each year by stretching our faith. I, I, I love PM's focus on, on, on stretching out and, and, and gearing up and winding up when most people are winding down. We're coming out of a season of stretching. But church, we cannot end there. What comes after stretching? Exercise. We need to go into a season of exercising. So everybody's talking about Happy New Year and resolutions and everything. They are dangerously close to a cycle of just doing that. Don't be in the 80% that fail in their resolutions by February. But we need to enter into a season of exercise, of working out. Because if all that we do is stretch, you will never be stronger. If I go to the gym and all I do is stretch, I'll be flexible. <laughs> but I won't be any stronger. Thank you guys so much for checking out this week's message. If there is any message that you have missed or you just want to hear again, they are all available for free on iTunes. Just search Anchor Faith Church Valdosta and be sure to subscribe. That way you'll be notified once the new messages are available. Also, if you'd like to learn more about our church and what we have available for you and your family, or if you'd like to donate financially to the ministry, be sure to visit our website at anchorfaithvaldosta.com. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.